Hello and welcome back to the Planet Optimus. My name is Daniel and as always I'm joined by David to provide you with the weekly bite-sized dose of business-focused climate positivity. We are the collective who aims to motivate others to answer the climate rallying call, not through fear but through highlighting the abundance of truly incredible stories where individuals and companies have married the market to our responsibility to the planet. We want to thank everyone who continues to engage with the podcast which goes out every Friday and our newsletter which goes out on every Monday. Daniel, how are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad, thank you. I um had a fun weekend despite the the football results. So, you know, for us as I'm a, unfortunately a Chelsea fan, um and we didn't have too much of a good good match the other day. I was um I didn't realize but the Chelsea Leeds match is actually sort of a fairly fierce rivalry that goes back, you know, quite a few um quite a few years. I never realized it cuz you know, all the rivalries you normally hear about are um, you know, sort of geographical, you know, the London derbies or whatever or Man U versus Man City, but Chelsea Leeds just seems like a weird rivalry. So extra upset that we lost that, but um it is what it is. We're we're still going to win the league, I'm sure. Um I'm sure we're not. Super. How about you, David? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm an adopted Chelsea fan, as you know, because you're a Chelsea fan and our good friend Dom is a Chelsea fan. So this is the first season since I think about 2006 that I've actually paid attention. So I share your heartache, but only a little bit of it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm all good. Um, and we've actually had some questions this week. The first of which, which is I think we should address, comes from uh, DJ Blake 96. Uh, and they've asked, why do you keep referring to the invisible hand? Which I've realised, if you're not familiar with, sounds really strange. So, your 90-second challenge this week is a little bit different. It's a definition. Can you discuss the invisible hand? Three, two, one, go. So, this is one of my favourite topics. I could spend 90 minutes on it, but I will stick to the 90 seconds. Um, Back in the day, and by that I mean the 1700s, people were trying to figure out how the economy interacted with all the microeconomic nuances, translating to macroeconomic events and what the government could or should do about it. Uh, The invisible hand is a metaphor for how supply and demand interact with each other. When left to its own forces, the market will self-regulate and achieve a long-run equilibrium, ultimately to the benefit of society and the economy as a whole. Uh, For example, when the demand for something goes up, the price will increase. This will increase the supply of that good, as the producers can now get more money, so the opportunity cost of not producing it increases. And that would drive the price back down, as you know, there's an oversupply. Uh, It was coined by the Scottish economist and philosopher Adam Smith in his book, The Wealth of Nations. Uh, Actually, this doesn't do him any justice. He is essentially the father of modern economics. But the invisible hand is a very interesting uh, sort of market force because, of course, you can either have a self-regulating market, you know, the invisible hand where the market forces um, arrive at an equilibrium, or you can have sort of unfortunately more of a a command economy situation um whereby the government steps in and sort of decides a bit more um on what the sort of market forces should be doing and sort of setting those prices themselves and there's a lot of debate as to which one is the best oh damn it you were doing so well yeah you've started so you can finish yeah um so you know there's there's a lot of debate as to which one or method is is the best and you know here david and i um are very keen free marketeers and that's why we often refer to the invisible hand 
Absolutely, we, we really are. I mean, his ideas have continued to influence debate and policy, uh, even up to this day. You've got a master's actually, and a bachelor's actually in economics, and I've recently completed my MBA module in economics. So it's very much something we're interested in. Have you ever read The Wealth of Nations? So the book is split up into five individual books, and I've read the first. And as you say, even with an economics bachelor's and master's under my belt, it's still a tough read. Um, and while I've only read the first book, I do plan on finishing the other fours and uh, four in the next few years or so. So that's going to be an interesting little project for me. Um, but you only need to look through history to see where those who went against it ultimately failed. Uh, much of China's meteoric rise as a global power is due to privatization with the Chinese economy after Mao. Um, but how about you? How much have you read of the Wealth of Nations? I, I've skimmed it. I, I suppose it's a bit like the Bible for capitalists. You can remember the, the key points, you know, um, but you don't necessarily have to have sat down and powered through the whole thing. No, absolutely. I don't think you necessarily need to have read the whole thing, but there are some real free marketed gems. And I do have to share one of my favorites, which refers to the motivations of individuals within the market, which is, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love and never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. And this is a very long-winded way of saying it's not thanks to the altruism of other people that they supply the goods and services that we demand, um, but because of their own desires, their own need uh, to survive and live. It is full of sound bites about business, trade, liberalism, the market. I will include the Audible link in the description because I feel that it's probably easiest to digest Adam Smith passively. In fact, if you're from the UK, or more specifically England and Wales, you would almost certainly know what he looks like, Adam Smith, because he was the face on the reverse of the old paper £20 notes. Not the Elgar one. No, that would uh, that would be Elgar. I think we should include a weekly Adam Smith quote because he is to economics what Darwin is to biology. And what beer is to Friday night. Uh, we'll have to see what you come up with next week then. Uh, one final thing that we should mention before we begin this week is that we have a... Well, we have proper condenser mics on order, uh, so our dulcet home county's tone will, uh, tones will slide far more easily into your ears. And this week we are tackling global food production because despite major regional differences in the way we eat and the way we produce food resolving this climate emergency is a global issue a burden we must shoulder collectively and 37 percent of emissions come from the food production process 20 times that than the crypto industry which we highlighted has been problematic in the first episode now of course for much of the world access to nutritious organic food is a luxury. Uh, indeed, huge swathes of the global population are yet to have uh, reliable clean water sources and food sources to start with. Uh, there's currently a horrendous drought facing countries in the Horn of Africa. Uh, link in the bio to Oxfam where you can donate to help. But regardless, every continent is still culpable. And I'll also say um, on the topic of droughts, not in Africa, we were discussing um, sort of before we came on about uh, Latin America, but, and I told you that Mexico is the fourth largest producer of beer in the world, and uh, they're currently experiencing a drought. And the Mexican president earlier this month um, actually announced that breweries in the north of the country are no longer allowed to um, continue production. And so this is harming the likes of AB InBev and Heineken. So if you are a Corona drinker or a Modelo Special drinker, um, I'd stock up now um, or move over to a better drink. But 
that's up to you. We have a potential crisis uh, heading our way. Yeah, it would be interesting to see how that plays out. But um, the most common thing, you know, do something for the planet method of, of changing your diet is often, you know, said to be just become vegan. Uh, but I feel there are a number of secondary issues with this. You know, don't get me wrong. I, I actually enjoy a lot of vegan food. And while I'm not vegan myself, I'm very happy to eat a vegan diet, uh, usually by accident, honestly. But it's changing your diet completely. And I'm not sure how viable that is as individuals and also the impact they would have on some very key sectors within the economy. Well, how much meat do you eat in a week? So out of breakfast, lunch and dinner, seven days a week, how many of those meals include animal? Well, I'm a bit naughty because I tend to skip breakfast as I'm never actually really hungry in the mornings. So out of the 14 possible meals, I would say, well, over half for sure. Um, yeah, so let's go for, I don't know, nine or 10 would be me, I think is a, is a fair assumption. You're a, you're a breakfast skipper. See, I'm more of a lunch skipper, you know, Gordon Gecko lunches for wimps. But that's, regardless, quite a lot. That's still quite a shift change. Uh, I don't eat meat, I, apart from the odd buffet blunder someone's mixed up the veggie and chicken samosas but uh, in fact although i say i'm a pescatarian i probably only eat fish three or four times a week so i'm almost vegetarian but i think even veganism is quite a stretch my sister's been vegan for at least five or six years probably more like seven or eight she claims it's incredibly easy though but i could definitely cut fish out i don't think i could cut cheese out though see my concern honestly would be that guinness used to not be vegan so I absolutely could not have been vegan. Um, they've since changed that, though, um, and I need it for my anemia. So actually, red meat is an incredibly important part of my diet, um, though there are other things like spinach that I eat a lot of that's rich in iron. So, you know, I wouldn't be completely uh, left without it. Um, but my attitude towards veganism or vegetarianism, for that matter, um, is that I just don't really care what I'm eating. Um as long as it's healthy um, and you know prepared nice and tastes good um, there are times where I will eat something vegan um, either because as I said I accidentally prepared it as vegan as in you know the recipe just doesn't use anything animal related um, or through actual substitution uh, because I do view some vegan options as slightly healthier you know if I buy sausages I would say nine times out of ten it will be a vegan sausage but generally I just eat what I fancy uh, sometimes it's vegetarian or vegan sometimes it's a lovely raw and bloody steak uh, you know having discussed this I sort of want to see just how difficult it would be to be vegan you know how long could I go um, diet wise I mean you know something that's fallen out of vogue I suppose you could say is the other half of veganism you know not wearing or using animal products um, outside of consuming them as you know, as food or drink, I suppose. That seems to get far less attention than the dietary side. And, you know, of course, um, not wearing, you know, not wearing leather, not contributing to the leather industry, that sort of stuff will, of course, offset um, your own carbon footprint. But is, I just, I don't know about you, David, but I, I just don't think that's spoken about too often. Um, no, you're, I mean, you're right. Yeah. Maybe that's just my own bubble. Like I, I just don't really care too much about the label. So long as it doesn't kill me, then I'll try it. Yeah, you. It, it's one of those things you don't really think of. I mean, I ordered a new car. I mean, a new car's take it forever to arrive these days. But I ordered a new car last June, and it came in January, and I didn't even think about the fact that there's leather inside. I mean, there must be, there must be four cows make up that car. But is this the one you've got at the moment? Yeah, the the black one, yeah. Yeah, four cows, yeah. I'd never considered that. Um, I have to be totally honest, though, because unlike a lot of non-meat eaters, I don't think I made that 
change out of animal rights concerns. I, I like animals, but I'm more concerned about climate change. But I gave up eating beef first about a year before I stopped eating other meats, simply because it was disproportionately and by far the worst food stuff for emissions. So, do you know, what? I really should have thought about that when I ordered my car. Yeah, I remember when you. Um, it was a New Year's resolution, wasn't it? Yeah, a couple of years ago, 2019, something like that. Yes, before before the event. <laughs> um, well, I've actually <laughs> I've actually got a summary of protein sources and their respective uh, CO2 emissions. And you're right. For every hundred grams of protein, 49.89 kilograms of CO2 is emitted to rear and produce that beef. Um, and if you if you're in the UK, although they've got locations elsewhere, um, if you go into a Brewdog bar, they will actually tell you how carbon intensive uh, the meal is that you're that you're having, which is interesting. Um, that's regardless of whether it's meat, whether it's a starter, that's absolutely everything. That's amazing. You know, it's quite interesting to look through and see how, you know, you're, you're looking through the vegan or the vegetarian options um, and then you just see the meat and you're like, wow, that's... Um, those are some bigger numbers. <laughs> you know, I was trying to work out the other day where I had these amazing uh, cauliflower hot wings. I mean, they're not really wings, they're just bits of cauliflower. And I was racking my ba- brain trying to think of what restaurant it was. And then I realised it was Brewdog in, I think, Soho. Yeah, that sauce. Is- oh, that's the one that we went to. We've been there a few times, but yeah. Yes, yeah. I remember. The, the um, You did find that hot sauce quite hot, didn't you? It was absolutely amazing yeah it's lovely it's lovely yeah but the vegan one is is the cauliflower i actually prefer the cauliflower mainly because i don't like having to eat chicken wings because it it gets too messy and your hands get messy and i, I don't like yeah, that that's horrible. Horrible. Yeah. i'm, I'm yeah. a knife i'm one of those people who would eat, genuinely eat chicken wings with a knife and fork i get a lot of um a lot of hate from my family for it <laughs> same same with burgers i want a big burger but i, I want to eat it be able to eat it without getting it all over. Anyway, we digress. Well, well, we live in we live in homes. We live in houses now. There's no need to eat like a caveman. Exactly. But um, it's my turn to quiz you this week. Um, so you know, I gave you the um CO two output of of how to you know rearing and producing beef. But um, what do you think is the is the next worst? Uh, I don't actually think that chicken and poultry is as bad as people think it is. Because I'm pretty sure in the West, I think in the UK, and I'm almost sure in the US, that's the most consumed meat. I'm going to say pork because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the most consumed meat in China, and obviously being close to 1.4 billion people, that's got to have an impact. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to say pork. They do. It is the most eaten meat in China. Um, very good, but you're wrong. Unfortunately, it's lamb slash mutton, um, which is at 19.85 kilograms of CO2 uh, per 100 grams of protein. How about number three on the list? Well, I'm not going to go for pork again because I feel like if it's the primary protein for the world's most populous nation, it it can't be that bad. So it's got to be lo- lower down the list. Um, oh no, it's got to be dairy. So cheese and milk, or is that one? It's tomatoes. When have you ever heard a real devoted gym goer say, you know what, if you're working out this much, you need some sun-dried tomatoes, or I think you need some ketchup. That's not even a proper protein source. It's just a fruit with a small bit of protein in it. Yeah, but bruschetta's great, though. 
Um, I think it is a bit leading. Um, I do love bruschetta. I don't know why. Um, I think it is a bit misleading, though. Um, you know, the next food that I'd actually call protein is farmed prawns at 18.19 uh, kilograms of CO2 per 100 grams of protein. See, I thought fish wasn't that bad. Well, farmed fish itself is only 5.7 kilograms per 100 grams of uh, CO2, but prawns are another matter. So, so what protein sources then are super low in CO2 output? They're all the typical bastions of misery. Uh, tofu is 1.98 kilograms, uh, ground nuts 1.23, and <laughs> other pulses are at 0.84 kilograms, which, you know, pulses have their place in a... Um, as a as a university former university student myself you know i use those quite a lot they're very cheap um and you can make a lot of interesting and uh, well i won't say fun meals out of them but they feed you anyway bulking isn't it bulking things out with pulses absolutely absolutely um and by the way this list is in the description so check it out it's actually uh, quite staggering by the way this list is in the description so check it out it's actually quite staggering um and I think the issue people have is feeling like they're being forced to change their diet to a food they don't particularly want to eat. And as a libertarian, I don't think you should really tell people what to do in the first place, um, let alone dictate something personal, as in, you know, someone's diet. So as a sort of veggie, uh, what are your views on meat substitutes, David? Well, have you had the vegan Burger King Royale? No, but I think I was with you when you ordered it once on our way back from Blackpool. No, you're right, I did. Yeah. Well, the next time we're in town, I shall treat you to one because it's probably the most authentic meat knockoff I've ever tried. Um, actually, that's not true. It's probably second to Mildred's. Have you been to Mildred's? I have not. I've never even heard of them, actually. It's um, wonderful chains of restaurants. They've got I think, six locations across central London, 100% plant-based across their entire menu. Honestly, great food. Link in the description, as always. Well, I have to say that if you're taking me on this date, I would rather Mildred's than Burger King, but there is a cost of living crisis at the moment. Well, to prove that plant-based doesn't have to be miserable oaty gravel, I will weather the fiscal storm and take you to Mildred's. Uh, Because having replicas of meat dishes, uh, a vegan burger or a vegan sausage, it's not making people change their dietary habits. You're eating the same dishes, they're just made out of different ingredients. I mean, the Goliath of this industry has got to be Impossible Foods, Inc. Uh, I suppose best known, you would have heard them, for their beef substitute, the Impossible Burger. They've raised just under $2 billion in 12 rounds of funding. Gates has put up cash, as has Google Ventures, Horizon Ventures, UBS. They're a major, major player. Yeah, I've come across them because they are a hotly anticipated IPO. Um, I think they were tipped for a quarter one, quarter two float this year but given the current market volatility i think they opted to postpone understandable i mean bit of history they were founded uh, 11 years ago by patrick o'brown and within five years they developed the impossible burger they claim that uses 90 percent less land 74 percent less water and emits 87 percent less greenhouse gases than your typical beef patty three years ago they introduced the impossible burger 2.0 which I have to say is predominantly available in the US. You can get them at Trader Joe's or Walmart. But I have had their nuggets. They do sell the nuggets in the UK. And they are pretty spot on. I mean, it's been two years since I've eaten meat. So any meat substitute to me tastes like meat to me. But I honestly rate them. They It's not your typical, you know, miserable bean burger substitute. It tastes like chicken. 
Yeah, Beyond Meat did an IPO in 2019. Um, I think Coca-Cola actually have a minority stake in them. Um, I'm not too sure, but I'm fairly confident they do, um, which is unfortunate because year to date, I think the company is down by around 60%. Um, unsurprising because their balance sheet isn't the most attractive. Um, a lot of minor signs where you don't want them to be. And they're also regularly missing uh, consensus, which isn't great um they're still young though and i do think the space is exciting um though following the pandemic a lot of people are more health conscious and they're also more focused on the quality of the products that they're consuming there's been a real shift from quality uh, sorry real shift from quantity uh, to quantity and impossible foods announced back in 2021 um only last year that not only are they are their products tastier than meat, um, but they have recently cut their prices of their burger patties by 20% in order to become more competitive. Uh, currently, plant-based meat substitute sales are around the 1% mark of the total meat market, and I suppose by cutting their prices to become more in line with uh, these, you know, with a meat patty, um, they're going to get more people to sort of transition over and and try these products out yeah exactly and so, so what's the answer to the next stage and how can we further increase the market share and make these products more accessible well like anything um adoption by more and more people will bring the cost down um in the us you're paying anywhere from three dollars to eight dollars a pound for ground beef uh, the cost of impossible ground beef is more like twelve dollars a pound um, a term that's being used in the industry at the moment is a um, griddle parity, which is sort of a play on term for grid parity, uh, which is used in the energy market to, to describe the point where the cost of renewable energy is equal to the market price of electricity. This is the only point where you'll get mass adoption, really. Um, so they they say, in, and in my personal view, I'm not entirely convinced. Um, don't get me wrong, I want the price of these things to be lower, not just for my own consumption, but you know, so much of the food on the supermarket shelves these days are overly processed and incredibly healthy, unhealthy, sorry. Mm. Um, so to have access to healthy food for far more people is incredibly important. But there is an argument for a higher price suggesting quality or health, perhaps. You know, if you saw a can of craft beer, for example, at the same price as a can of Foster's, are you really going to think is a great product, you know, just as an example? Yeah, no, I do get your point. It is a lot more than prime beef, though. But I would argue if you're in the position to regularly buy significant qualities of prime beef, surely you are the first. You should be the first to make the switch and drive the prices down for the rest of us. Same with any shift change, mobile phones, electric cars, computers. People get on board, they become accessible. Write in if you would happily ditch beef for beef substitutes. I mean, if there was price parity, choice, availability, it was decent, would you switch, Daniel? Well... Analysts expect the so-called griddle parity uh, to be reached in about two or three years, um, just as a sort of side note. But I'd continue consuming as I do, honestly. Um, but I think that's because I think I've made a pseudo shift already. I'm quite on it, or I like to think I am in terms of what I cook and eat. Um, so I appreciate that it's important to have meat in your diet, but equally that there are benefits that non-meat products can give you. Um, we're a lot more sedentary now, so you know, compared to our ancestors. So we don't have to load up on meat and protein. So we can, you know, substitute or kick some of it out entirely. Um, 
but i think the discussion has definitely begun to shift um i think for me it's more about not eating anything too processed uh something i'm really interested in is how we can incorporate insects into our diet and that's something we'll get onto as well um but it's something i would certainly be happy to do uh, the benefits range from economical health you know innovation wise even environmental um i've had crickets before and they were nice um they're basically just animal crisps i suppose which is a horrible way of putting it um, but David, have you have you ever eaten insects or uh, animal crisps? Um, they're not the easiest to find in shops. And as far as I can make out, I can't walk into a Waitrose and find rows of packets of you know insects down the crisp aisle. Well, I, I have to I have to tell you, I've actually ditched Waitrose for M&S, so I'm sorry to have uh, left you in the list, but I haven't seen them down the aisles in M&S either. You do get them though in those little niche health food stores in London. Um, but to answer your question, yes, I have eaten worms. Uh, not like a bird out of the garden, but dried and chilied mealworms. Um, and they're fine, aren't they? They're just like any other dried snack. You wouldn't know it was an insect. Yeah, and I think as well as you know, as well as being healthy and packed with nutrition, um, they'd be a great bar snack. You know, I'd have some barbecue crickets alongside my pint of Guinness. Um, but when it comes down to the nutritional benefits, taking mealworms as an example, um, they have per hundred grams uh, twenty-four grams of protein, which is only two grams less uh, than ground beef. That's amazing. Why is it that such a tiny little thing is so protein-packed? It comes down to biology. Um, insects use up less energy and therefore they have a greater biomass, and this translates to greater nutrition. Uh, cattle use a lot of the energy they get for food, from food, sorry, for things like homeostasis, uh, self-regulation of an organism's internal process, you know, a bit like an invisible hand of chemicals, if you will. Uh, insects don't have as much of an energy intensive life uh, so when we eat them more of the energy they have is passed on to us rather than wasted like with cattle but when it comes to insect agriculture um, in britain we've sort of taken a step backwards since brexit uh, even though this is supposed to be something to liberate us from unnecessary red tape uh, the government seems to have made it difficult for these companies many of whom are smes um, to conduct their business effectively making it illegal for companies to farm insects for our own consumption. Um, how much is it due to gain authorization to operate in this market, David? It's anywhere between 70 and 85k pounds, which is a lot. Which, yeah, absolutely is insane. Um, I really do hope the government reconsiders how they're approaching the industry. Uh, it's another way for Britain to shine on the world stage. Um, but more than this, it's really going to harm SMEs, which are such an integral part to our economy. Uh, we will definitely discuss them in more detail in a future episode. It's something I feel very passionate about. Um, I definitely prefer to purchase from an SME, even if the product is more expensive. Yeah, and we'll certainly touch on them again. Um, but something I found really interesting when I was researching for this episode is why the insect trend hasn't taken off in the West as it has done in the East. And do you know why that is? No, but I'd love to hear it. Insects in the West are smaller. So for our ancestors, it simply wasn't as viable to search for them and eat them. Uh, they you know, they'd run more of an energy deficit. And as you know, we don't like deficits. We do not, David. And uh, in in the East, in Asia, and in Africa, um, insects are simply larger, so they were more commonly eaten. I mean, uh, imagine if you'd never eaten meat before, and someone said, "Hey, would you like to kill and eat this lamb?" You'd probably think that was weird. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, also, what about things like shrimp or prawns or lobster, though? You know, sort of like sea insects, right? We eat those, so why not insects? It's all about perception, and I think that's the biggest hurdle we face in terms of getting insects onto the menu in the West. Fun fact, though, did you know that pigs 
produce up to 100 times more greenhouse gases per kilogram of body weight than mealworms. Uh, mealworms also feed on bio-waste, which requires less water than livestock. There's some really, really interesting resources on this from the United Nations website. So, as always, they're in the show docs as well. That really is a significant amount. Um, I think there are so many arguments in favour of incorporating insects into our diet. As I said, I definitely would. And if you'll pardon the pun, I don't get bugged out by insects. That was awful. I know, but it's true. I don't mind them. Uh, though I do have an, did have an unfortunate interaction with a spider this morning. I don't do spiders, David. Do, do not. What was this interaction? Well, I was laying in bed and I knew there was a spider in the room, but, you know, he had his own little place and he was chilling. So I let him be. I have my space. You have yours. I'll respect your boundaries and you mine. Um, only this morning he didn't. He went onto the ceiling space above the bed and then descended down to the pillow from, you know, a little bit like a web. Um, I was woken up by a there's a spider on the bed and I was still half asleep, but well, I'm a sprinter, David, and I'll have a little brag. I can run one and a half miles in under 10 minutes, but I have never moved as fast as I did this morning. Um, I then had to deal with getting the spider out of the room, and I think almost 12 hours later, uh, the adrenaline is still pumping, and it wasn't even a big spider. Well, I'm very proud of you, and on that arachnid note, I think it's time to wrap up for this week. It's been a long one, David, but I think it's such an inter- interesting topic that it's tough not to dive into so much detail um i think we probably could have gone on for longer absolutely i agree so do please write in and let us know whether you'd like a follow-up episode to this Uh, you can reach out to us at the planet optimist on instagram links to all our socials are found down in the show docs you could also subscribe to our weekly newsletter uh, which goes out on monday and remember every action counts so whether you're substituting meat for a vegan or veggie alternative one day a week that can make a difference um Side note as well, if you are going to go out in your garden now and find some insects, please do be careful on what you're eating. And as always, we like to say here, mighty oaks grow from tiny acorns. And as our resident oak, it's goodbye for now. Goodbye.